Hey everyone, it's Jillian Youngblood from Civic Genius. Welcome back to our special podcast series on digital disinformation and free speech. This is actually an extra special bluegrass edition of the podcast because you're listening to it in the run-up to our next big citizen problem-solving events, which are happening in Lexington, Kentucky on September 28th and 29th. You can register for the events at OurCivicGenius.org. They are fun, they are free, there's food, and you can learn how to create real workable solutions on the topic of digital disinformation and free speech. So that means figuring out how we can deal with misinformation on social media and on search engines and everywhere else that you encounter it without compromising our constitutional right to free speech. Shannon Oltman is an associate professor in the School of Information Science at the University of Kentucky. Her research interests include information ethics, censorship, intellectual freedom, information policy, public libraries, and privacy. She's the editor of the Journal of Intellectual Freedom and Privacy. She's the author of the book, Practicing Intellectual Freedom in Libraries, and she's been published all over the place. Shannon, welcome to the show. Hello, thanks for having me. I'm excited to have this discussion. So if you're someone who has an internet connection of any kind, you have probably encountered some kind of misinformation or disinformation. It's hard to know what you're looking at in the past few years, whether it's around COVID or elections or any number of other topics. It can be really hard to know what sources to trust and how to tell fact from fiction. So at Civic Genius, we've been talking with people across the country this year about how they think we should manage this crazy information world we live in. And a lot of people have said to me things like, can you just make a list of trustworthy sources so I don't have to take every single thing I read on a case-by-case basis and I can just share it with other people online when I see them spreading misinformation, which I totally get as a request. But there's a core tension here which is how do we make the internet a place where you can generally find accurate information without compromising free speech or trampling on intellectual freedom? So Shannon, I wanted to start off just by asking you very broadly, how do you think about that question? Well, freedom of speech in the United States is kind of a a strange thing because we have really extensive protection for freedom of speech probably the most out of any country in the world. Um, We protect huge categories of speech that other nations say should not be protected. So, and we've done that basically since the founding of the country. So we're coming at it from this place of um, a really vast protection of freedom of speech. And then we get to social media and the internet where all these different um, speech acts, all these different posts and comments and news stories start interacting and colliding with one another. And it's um, really hard to know how to address this problem. And what are some, you mentioned some kinds of speech that in the U.S. we protect under the First Amendment that other countries don't. What are some examples? Well, perhaps the easiest example and the most controversial example is hate speech. Uh, Many countries in Europe, for example, you can't talk about Nazis online. Um, you can't sell Nazi memorabilia. You couldn't publish a book that was pro-Nazi. Um, and other categories of hate speech beyond Nazi are 
tightly regulated. In the U.S., we kind of have a free-for-all. We say hate speech is really hard to define. Hate speech is in the eyes of the beholder. And allowing this speech can have some positive ramifications at the end of the day. So rather than trying to block people from saying things that may be hateful or harmful, we will allow that as part of the national conversation. So what good can come of hate speech? Well, there's a couple things. One is if somebody is uh, utilizing hate speech, that tells you something about the person and that tells you something about their position where they stand. Now you are more informed. It also lets us know what hate groups and hateful communities are thinking about and doing and saying. It's good to be informed and knowledgeable about what these groups are thinking and saying because sometimes they edge from just free speech into potentially um, harming other people physically and potentially committing terrorist acts. So we want to be aware of what they're thinking. And sometimes um, having dialogue with people who utilize hate speech, sometimes dialogue changes their mind or makes them pause and rethink. This is not successful 100% of the time, as anybody who's attempted an internet argument knows. But people do stop and consider what another person is saying. Sometimes they take it in, think about it, and later they have a revelation. So I wouldn't want to pause those conversations or stop those conversations from occurring. Is Can you think, I'm just curious, like to make it a concrete for people. Mm-hmm. So one example that people bring up a lot with me is um, the lab leak theory. So kind of early on in COVID, there was um, the suggestion that um, COVID was a bioweapon. I mean, there are a few different versions. The first one I heard, I think, was that COVID was a bioweapon by the Chinese government. It had come from a lab in China um, that was turned into something that was stoking a lot of um, racism and xenophobia um, against China and Chinese people. And um, we shut it down really fast. Like the the sort of um, you know, polite society discourse, shut it down. I think social media companies um, were pushing that kind of content down, um, you know, with with good reasons, I think like the ones I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of weeks or months later, some national security um, experts and scientists were saying, you know, we should probably like look into it. It's possible that it escaped from a lab. Like there are, could be other truths kind of wrapped up in that. Um so that kind of crystallized for me, I think, kind of what you're saying, which is there could there can be useful stuff that comes out of something that may or may not be disinformation. And you don't always know, like in a rapidly moving situation like COVID, you don't necessarily um, know yet, like the verdict's not out. It's really interesting to think about something like hate speech as having value and I'm curious if you think, so you have a lot of expertise in libraries, in how librarians can foster intellectual freedom um, in libraries. Mm -hmm. And so kind of wanted to ask, do you see, what parallels or differences do you see between the way that you would think of how libraries can foster intellectual freedom 
And the difference between the internet, where you don't have like a librarian of the internet, although that would be a great job for somebody. <laughs> I guess maybe Wikipedia is a librarian of the internet. Not really. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah. <laughs> so how do you see um, like that sort of more controlled mm -hmm. environment of, as a, of a library mm -hmm. and the free for all that is the internet? Sure. So I'm going to focus on public libraries because I think they're most relevant to this conversation. Um, public libraries are usually government agencies. They're run by the city, the county, something like that. And their primary mission is to provide access to information. At the heart of it, that's what public libraries are all about. Um, people can quibble about whether this information or that information should be in the library, whether it should be um, online content or physical books. You know, we can have these sorts of debates, but at the end of the day, public libraries are about access to information and providing that to everybody, regardless of station in life, um, demographic characteristics, anything like that. Social media companies or companies online are coming at this from a different way because they exist to make money. At the end of the day, that's what Facebook and Amazon and Twitter, Snap, Instagram, all these things are corporations to make money. And so they're less concerned with access to information than they are concerned with what is the most expedient and publicly agreeable way to moderate information online. Right now, they have a different goal. I'm sorry? So they have a different goal. <laughs> yeah, they have a different goal. And so they go about access to information differently. Companies like Facebook and Twitter um, arguably promote some freedom of speech, but they do so because they have assessed that's what the public wants and that's what will get them more usage, which creates more data points, which is information they can use for advertising and analytics. Right. And... So could you get in a little bit to how you might, I'm, I'm thinking about it through the lens of mis and disinformation. Sure. So I could imagine, and just quickly, um, you know, so we would think of disinformation as incorrect information that someone is putting out into the world for a purpose. Right. And then misinformation is kind of what results from that. So if, you know, the Russian government tells me something incorrect, um, you know, give, feeds me some kind of propaganda, and I then repeat it, not realizing it's false. I'm spreading misinformation. Mm -hmm. They're spreading disinformation. Right. So how do you think about disinformation in a library? So should a library, for example, have like the protocols of the elders of Zion <laughs> or like, I'm trying to think of it like Mein Kampf, something that mm -hmm. is, um, you know, that is hateful, that is intended to spread, um, you know, is intended to spread some kind of ideological view that's not necessarily based in fact. Um, what does that look like in a library? And then what do you think that should look like online? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, librarians debate these sorts of questions all the time. Should we carry Mein Kampf? Should we carry a Holocaust denial book? Um, should we carry some of the extreme fringe political views that are published these days? And the answer will vary from library to library. Um, libraries need to look at their community, who's, who is coming in to access the information. Um, they need to look at their policies about collecting books and other resources um, and decide if Mein Kampf is right for them 
it's not going to be right for many libraries these days. They just wouldn't have community interest in it. It wouldn't be relevant to a community. But some libraries, it might be. And this is probably a good point to note that if somebody checks out Mein Kampf, we don't know why they're doing that. They might be checking it out because they're a believer and they want to follow in, in the footsteps. They might be doing it because they want to learn about believers. They want to go back to the root of Nazism and find out um, how it all started from an analytical research point of view. Maybe they're checking out the book for their nephew or their aunt, and they're not even going to read it themselves. So we can't make assumptions based on what people access at the library. I just wanted to dig into something you said, which is a library would want to assess whether something is right for their community. Could you talk a little bit about what that means, what kinds of things you would take into consideration? Sure, sure. So you might look at the size of your community and the size of your budget. Um, You might decide that your library is more focused on bestsellers um, than classics or older books. You might take into consideration the demographics of your community. Um, You know, if we're mostly um, a senior citizen community, um, relatively little racial and ethnic diversity, that will affect which books a library purchases, as opposed to, say, a library in an urban setting um, with greater racial and ethnic diversity, more young folks coming in. Um, I think it makes sense that those libraries would They'd have a fair amount of overlap, but they also would have some differences in the types of resources they had available. Um, It's also important for libraries to have a policy about this, and usually those policies will list a number of characteristics that we look for. Um, Those characteristics might be um, relevance to the community, um, impact on the community, um, accuracy, how how the book has been reviewed in professional literature. So we look at a number of factors to determine whether a book should be purchased or not. So if you were in a conversation with some other librarians Mm -hmm. who, let's say, all have a great budget, they've got a big, diverse community, lots of different kinds of people who are coming through their doors and checking things out, um, and they had to answer this tough question of, should we carry this book? Um, that's got, and I, you know, I don't even need to restrict it certainly to something like Mein Kampf, but all kinds of books mm-hmm. are, um, you know, under consideration in schools and libraries right mm-hmm. now. So To Kill a Mockingbird or The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, things that have, um, uh, you know, racist and racialized words that are, um, I guess that maybe you could worry would be taken out of context or maybe wouldn't be understood by the reader. So how, um, like if you were giving a seminar and you had to sort of give your your worldview of what you think the ideal librarian should do when they're making that kind of decision, how would you think about it? So I would call upon two principles of librarianship. One is diversity of resources. So even if you have um, a restricted community or very heterogeneous community, you shouldn't buy um, resources that only look like that community. Um, that only speak to that community. You need to have a diversity of perspectives um, on the shelves. So when I talk about this with librarians, I say that doesn't mean you need to have three books written by a Democrat and three books written by a Republican necessarily, but you should have 
um, the range of views represented. And don't just think about Democrats and Republicans. What about um, the Tea Party, the Libertarian Party, um, the Democratic Socialists? There's actually quite a range of political views in the United States, and a good library will have um, access to all of them. And that's the second principle I would turn to is access. Um, it's one of the core values of librarianship, according to the American Library Association. And it really just means um, providing access to resources. If you have the budget to buy books, to buy certain books, then you should be buying them. Um, even if some of them make you uncomfortable, even if some of them you might find distasteful. There's a classic quote in the library world, a good library has something to offend everyone. And I always tell librarians, that means you too. You should be shelving some books that make you uncomfortable. And that's because what appeals to a particular librarian may not appeal to a particular patron. So you wanna have that diversity of perspectives included. So you, yeah, so as a librarian, ideally you're thinking about yourself as kind of a steward of this mm -hmm. community resource. And so then there's the internet. <laughs> Right. <laughs> where there's no one who's like the independent, you know, what like elected watchdog of what everybody's seeing. And there's a kind of, I mean, I don't need to like try to pontificate on the differences between checking out a physical book at a library um, from reading something online. But as I imagine like, okay, what would it have looked like if I were in high school and I'd gone to the public library and check, you know, which I did all the time and checked out a book that you could say is objectionable in some way. Mm -hmm. And I was like a very nerdy kid who was taking, you know, all of the things mm -hmm. I was reading really seriously. Like the, I don't know, the risk to society, <laughs> like as you, however you want to construe it from an example like that is pretty low, right? Like I'm one person, I'm reading a book. It takes a long time to read a book. Um, it's just a totally different way of information moving and getting synthesized mm -hmm. than when I encounter something online whether it is through social media or like I've just used a search engine that's kind of feeding me things that are also driven by an algorithm. So does, do you think that your recommendations or your, the way that you think about it changes at all with the speed and the, just the way that information moves online? Yeah, I think there's some key differences to online information. One is that it's uh, many to many transmission which means it's not one person writing a book that many people can read. It's many people speaking to many people. And communication goes both ways. Most of us are consumers of information online. Um, we read blogs, we read social media, we read news sites, all these things. But many of us are also producers of information too. We create posts, um, we have a blog, we have an Insta account, right? So. Um, and that really changes the dynamic of the information flow, as you said. The other thing is, like you said, there's nobody who's acting as a good faith steward of the internet or of social media in particular. Um, we have that in, say, the publishing world. You have editors and multiple levels of review before a book gets out, but there's nobody doing that with internet posts. Um, blogs, even some news sort news quote unquote news sources have very little editorial review these days, um, and so that affects the accuracy of the information that we see. Um, 
but it's really the many to many transmission. Um, the fact that a few people can reach hundreds, thousands, millions of others that uh, affects the so-called danger, the, the impact, the reach of things that we see online. And kind of, so it's kind of like for better or for worse too. So I, I'm sure people made this argument about radio and certainly about TV. Like I can think of any number of TV doctors who um, give all kinds of good and bad and dubious health advice, for example. Uh, so I don't even want to imply that it's just limited to, um, you know, social media or search engines. Um, but it's like, you could say one of the great things about the internet is, is this many to many that you get, you don't have gatekeepers necessarily mm -hmm. deciding who gets published, who gets on TV, who gets to have a radio show. So and you get all these different perspectives. That allows a, a huge range of perspectives. Um, voices that used to be um, silenced, voices that used to be in the minority, they get a platform as well. And I think that's why we've seen more it's at least part of why we've seen more people of color in the news, um, both as journalists and as interviewees or news stories. Um, we've seen more LGBTQ uh, folks likewise. Um, we're getting more and more of their voices, more and more representation. And that's a cultural shift in our society. Some people are very pleased by it and some are not, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And right, so you get all of all of these great new perspectives, you're getting a much richer discourse than we did before we had the opportunity to be online and hear all these different voices. And then at the same time, some of those voices are saying crazy stuff. <laughs> so I'm just thinking of these, um, like these two different sort of information worlds. So you've got a library where there's a person who, at least to some extent, is publicly committed to creating an information environment that they think is really good and useful and beneficial for the community. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the Wild West of the Internet, mm -hmm. which is bigger and more diverse and faster moving um, and doesn't have... Um, you know, doesn't have like one single node or one single person mm -hmm. running it. Um, so which one of those, if you, I guess, if you think about it, if you think, if you want to prioritize um, free speech, free expression and intellectual freedom, what are the, I wouldn't even necessarily ask like which one's better, but what are kind of the, <laughs> like the better, the costs and benefits mm -hmm. of each one of those environments? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I'll start with the internet. The costs and benefits of the internet are really vast. Um, one cost is you do get some harmful voices and some harmful perspectives. Um, you come across vile hate speech sometimes. And um, there's, of course, a monetary cost in terms of connecting to the internet, uh, paying those uploading or downloading costs, and um, the other cost, of course, is the misinformation, disinformation costs. And I don't want to downplay that at all. That's a really significant problem on the Internet right now. Um, we need to be thinking about ways that we can manage the misinformation and disinformation or be more critical as users and as consumers of this information. 
we can't just accept everything at face value. We can't just go to the new sites that we've liked best, rely on just a few sites, rely on just social media posts. We need to be more critical in how we um, consume and use information. But that's a really complex battle. Right. Yeah. So do you think, um, so if you are the supreme ruler of the internet, <laughs> somebody really should create the stuff. Um, you would be perfect for it. Um, if you, so if you had this role where you could decide, okay, this gets to stay, this is going to come down. Would you, would you make those decisions? Would you say everything is going to stay up and you know, you've got to trust that people can sort through all the data and all the inputs they're getting and, base, you know, most of the time make good decisions and come to good conclusions? Um, or do you think that there should be, that someone should have a role, whether it's the government, whether it's tech companies, um, in saying, you know, some of, like, some of this stuff is is just going to, it's too harmful. Like, it's going to have real world harms um, and we've got to draw the line somewhere. So right now, those decisions are made based on sort of the dominant voices in society and on a monetary basis, a financial basis, right? So people were really angry when Facebook was allowing anti-vaccine posts and um, threatened to boycott Facebook. The um, U.S. Uh, presidential administration came out and was very angry with Facebook, and Facebook was facing a backlash. So they said, okay, we'll curtail some of these. We'll tweak our algorithms so they come down further on the list. Um, we'll block some of the most controversial um, peddlers of disinformation around COVID vaccines. But that was purely based on financial motives and some um, social pressure as well. So I think there might be some better ways to do this, some better basis than financial motive, although that's right in line with neoliberalism. But I'm not sure that, I'm not sure what the better way is. Um, if we look at things like the dominant voices in society, well, that kind of scares me as a woman. Um, you know, when I was born, um, women had only had the ability to divorce their husbands and buy a credit, give their own credit card for a few years. I'm not sure I want society determining what freedom of speech is appropriate because society has um, sometimes really constrictive, repressive views, especially for minority groups. Um, you know, I'm also a lesbian and I worry about relying on the dominant voices in society or the loudest voices in society to determine um, what rights and what speech are appropriate, that could have really have potential to um, negatively impact people. So I'm not sure what is better than our current system. I agree our current system is pretty flawed, but I haven't been able to think of a better approach. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it too, because it's very easy to look at the way things are and say, this is terrible. I see all of these problems. And then the question is like, well, <laughs> you know, I can come up with all of these ideas on balance. Are they better? Like if I solve one problem, am I creating another problem? I'll give you Go an ahead. example. 
or another point of view. Some people want the federal government to have more say, more input into what should be allowed online and in social media. Do they mean the current administration? Do they mean whoever wins the next election? I don't want, you know, one day all of these posts to be banned because we've changed um, political parties of leadership. That seems really problematic to me. And the fact that the Biden administration was trying to influence some social media companies seems pretty problematic to me as well. I think there really needs to be a hands-off policy um, Mm -hmm. in that regard. So do you think, um, so if the, you're talking certainly about issues with the government making decisions um, or any you know level of government making decisions about, or I guess in this case, you're talking about the federal government mm-hmm. making that decision. How would you think about um, you know something where maybe a local government does have something to do with what kinds of information you can access? So a school board could determine you know what books are in schools or libraries, what kind of textbooks you're using. Um, I, I imagine a state or a local um, legislator or a county legislator maybe could have something to, to say about what um, is in a, a library system. Um, do you, how do you think about that tension where, where governments are involved mm-hmm. and what kind of um, information people get? Well, I think that can be really problematic too, right? There are um, elected officials at different levels, city, county, state, who want to have a lot more influence and say in what public libraries or school libraries have on their shelves. Mm -hmm. Generally, the people who agitate in this way have really restrictive views on what libraries should contain. They're afraid of anti-racism materials, materials with LGBTQ authors or characters, materials with Black, Indigenous, or people of color authors or characters. And they don't want these things on the shelf. So they want to take control from the libraries and librarians into the hands of the government. I think our government should be in the business of protecting and enhancing our rights, including access to information rather than restricting access to information. So this is really concerning to me. And I, the other thing is that librarians are professionally trained in how to evaluate the information they're considering putting on their shelves. That's one of my jobs is to help train the next generation of librarians. So we take that really seriously in almost every class. For example, we talk about the code of ethics, what that means, how you practically implement it in a library in different types of libraries. And so Um, elected officials are missing a lot of the context and the nuance that libraries have. Yeah. So you got into something really interesting there, which is to be a librarian, you've got all of this education in how to assess sources and where things are coming from. How can, like, how can an ordinary person do that online when it's not your job. Like my job at Civic Genius is to be able to know this kind of stuff. And people will ask me all the time, like, well, how do you know that that's a good source? Are you familiar with, like, is this a real newspaper? And I only know because I spend like 12 hours a day thinking about it. So what about the rest of us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not easy, right? It's not easy to separate facts from fiction, to 
um, figure out what is disinformation or misinformation. Some of these things are really sophisticated and really nuanced. I think going to your library is a good resource. Some libraries offer um, information literacy training. That's what we call it. Um, there's a push for school librarians to do this in schools. Of course, you might have to adjust the schooling hours and the priorities, take time away from test preparation and look at information literacy. How do I evaluate information? How do I become a more functional citizen beyond school? But there are some things that ordinary citizens, um, non-librarians can do, right? Um, one is to look at the author of a page you're reading and maybe look up that author. Is it somebody who is credentialed? Is it somebody who has a, a background in what they're talking about? Is it somebody who has the respect of their peers or is it somebody who's been ostracized by their peers? These things are not necessarily an end-all, be-all, but there's a number of factors that go that can kind of add up to, eh, this seems trustworthy, or eh, it seems maybe not trustworthy. Um, looking at the dates on publications is really helpful. Some of the disinformation that's being circulated about COVID vaccines, you know, is from 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So it's not even about COVID specifically. Some of the most trusted news agencies have worked really hard to develop their news corps, their editors and reporters. And just like librarians, reporters, journalists go through a lot of training in terms of ethics and accuracy and relevance and, and trustworthiness. So. Main, most mainstream news sources can be pretty reliable. Um, where you have to really take everything with a grain of salt is things like blogs, social media posts, um, and other places like that where there's less um, editorial oversight. And again, anyone can post anything. So one thing that you said, which I think is really good advice, is... It's like the thing that you want to know as a reader is, is this true? <laughs> Can I trust this? But it's not really that simple. Um, and as you're saying, it's like you have to sort of weigh all the different things that you know about this source, which might mean like 12 tabs on your browser. So mm -hmm. if you're on your phone, this is going to be a little bit trickier. But it's like, to me, it feels like you do have to kind of sit down with your laptop or your desktop and like really really add up everything that you know and just say, yeah, I think on balance, I think this is fairly trustworthy on balance. I think this is not so trustworthy. Um, and as consumers, like that's sort of, do we need to adjust our expectations, I guess, for what we know about the truth? Yeah, I think we might. Um, a lot of truth is relative. People are, tend to be really uncomfortable with that, that truth is relative or that truth has shades of gray to it. But you know, this is possible. And this makes me think of a few months ago, I saw a tweet about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And the tweet supported my personal views on NFTs. And I was like, oh, this is clever. 
and small and uh very well phrased, I'm immediately gonna share it. And then I thought, but are these figures true? Let me take two minutes and just double check. So I Googled it, um, copied from the tweet, Googled it, couldn't find anything that matched what this tweet was saying. They had apparently just pulled numbers out of the air. I was like, whoa, so I'm glad I didn't share it because then I would be looking like I'm spreading misinformation. Yeah. So sometimes it's really quick, you know, sometimes you can do a fact check really quick and you can actually see in real time if something is true or not true. And then you take that information in and reflect on it. Oh, maybe tweets are not the most reliable source. Maybe I need to keep double checking these tweets before I post them. Yeah. And it's hard because the, the, as you're describing, it's like you see something that, you know, like a light bulb goes off in your head and you like all your synapses are everything's firing and you're like, yes, I recognize it. I feel seen by this thing that I'm mm-hmm. reading, like the example that I've given before. And I'm so embarrassed to tell this story, but I'll just tell it again, I guess, is at some point really early in the pandemic. So I lived in New York state at the time and um, we were just really close to the center mm-hmm. of where everything was happening really early in the pandemic. And there was some video that I saw online. A bunch of my friends have shared all of the people that I would say, oh, these are my smart friends who keep up with things we're all sharing. And it was some, it turns out it was just some doctor, like some primary care doctor in, I want to say Michigan, um, like nowhere close to me, no one I'd ever heard of. And he was like, okay, here's the deal with COVID. If you're going to bring anything into your house, like groceries, for example, you got to be really careful and here's how I do it. And here's a good system. And he had this whole assembly line set up with like Clorox wipes and how you're removing things from containers and putting your sterile stuff here and your food here. And I was like, okay, I guess that's what we have to do. And I just did it for a couple of weeks before I was finally like, oh, this is actually nuts. And nothing else that I have seen at this point is suggesting that I need to keep doing this. But I did it because I was really scared and it felt like COVID was really close to me. Um, And I guess this is all just to illustrate that, like, I think when we're talking about misinformation online, it's really easy to say, oh, my God, these idiots that are posting this crazy stuff. But like anybody is vulnerable to this, regardless of education level, um, because it's just a really wide information world out there. Yeah, I think you're making a great point. Anybody is susceptible to misinformation, disinformation. But the other thing you did is illustrated having some skepticism. And when you learned something new, you changed your behavior, you changed your mind. And that is perhaps the most important thing. A lot of times we practice something called confirmation bias, where we see something that reinforces what we already agree. And we think, oh, that's probably true. I agree with it harder. And I'm going to share it more. And we kind of get built up that way. It's actually really difficult and kind of courageous to consider a different point of view and say, you know, I might need to change where I stand. I might need to stop wiping everything down with Clorox. Maybe that's okay. And it can take some guts to do that. But I think that is one of the big pieces that we're missing so far in the conversation is creating ways for people to say, hey, I made a mistake. Hey, I changed my mind. And finding ways to encourage folks to take that step. 
Yeah. Thank you for calling my crazy phobia courageous. I feel a lot better about it now. We all uh, yeah, I, things during the height of the pandemic. <laughs> Everybody gets a pass for something. So I just wanted to ask, I think it's, it's really, it's really true. And I think that I'm sure people, you can have a lot of opinions about what makes it difficult to say, Hey, changed my mind. Um, but I do think, you know, one of those things is kind of the, the media environment. Mm-hmm. Like it's, especially on social media. Like I, it sounds like you're a Twitter user. I mainline Twitter in a way that's probably not healthy. Um, but like, you're supposed to have a hot take, right? You always want to be, you always want to be the person who's like, got a quip, who's seen the, the sort of, um, you know, under noticed thing and whatever the news story is. Um, and it's a, like, it takes away from the sort of performative nature of the whole thing to say, actually, I've consulted a bunch of sources and this is, you know, the thing that I was thinking is actually sort of uninteresting or maybe not even totally false, but sort of not the point. Like mm-hmm. when you have to introduce all that nuance into the medium, it's just like, oh, it's not fun anymore. Yeah. It's hard to do in 280 characters. Right. And it's not nearly as fun as posting something clever or witty, whether you're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you are, but it can also become your brand, right? Like, huh, is this thing true? Let me go check what Jillian said. That's true. I, w- I should be like Twitter wet blanket. We need more, just like more social media wet blankets in general. Do you think that social media companies have an obligation to change the way that they show us information? Well, or do you think that it's something consumers really need to? I think it's something that... They should change somewhat. I think a little more transparency would go a long way. Um, not everybody realizes this or knows this, but on Facebook, for example, the way you see posts from your friends is not strictly in chronological order. Um, the way you see tweets is not in chronological order. It That's, used to be back in the olden yeah. days. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's all developed by really complex algorithms, really complex equations that say, if someone spent three seconds looking at this, and if they liked these things in the past, and if it's this time of day, then we'll show them X, Y, and Z. I'm just making that up because actually we have no idea what the algorithm measures or evaluates, but we know they're really complex. And we also know that these social media companies are collecting tons of data on this. Do they know if I read my friend's post for four seconds? I don't know, but they probably do. They probably have that data. Do they know that I'm more likely to click like on pictures of dogs than pictures of cats? Oh, I'm almost certain they know that. And they use that to help determine that I see more pictures of dogs. Because those clicks, those likes, those four seconds spent on somebody else's post, that's all a form of engagement. And that's ultimately what they're selling to advertisers. That's the, their currency. Mm-hmm. So, the so question, I'm sorry, the question was, should that change? Should that be more transparent in some way? Absolutely. Um, otherwise, it kind of feels like we're being manipulated, right? Some algorithm that we don't understand, that we don't know anything about, is choosing which tweets to show me and which tweets not to show me, by the way. So 
um, more transparency so that we could at least understand how the game is being played. I think that would be really useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like when you're watching, not to say that I'm not impacted by advertisements or commercials, but it's like when you see an ad and you know, it's an ad, you know, it's an ad. Um, when you don't know how the information is getting to you and it looks like news or you're seeing it first. So it looks like it's the most important. Um, you can't even do that backtrack of like, you know, check myself. Do I need to buy this? Like, is this gonna, (laughs) is this product going to solve the problem that I think it's going to solve? Right. I mean, a lot of people are unaware that the first several results on a Google search are ads and they may just think they're part of the hits they got from their search, but clicking on those um, perpetuates certain algorithms and perpetuates the sort of results that you get next time you search. Yeah, it's hard. I, I feel like we, I accidentally end up beating up on, on social media, but search engines are as big a part of this as anything else. Like my search results for something are going to look different than your search mm-hmm. results. And um, something that a, a previous guest, Francesca Tripodi, made a great point about is um like I've got the way that I talk about my politics and you've got the way that you talk about your politics. So we're going to ask questions differently mm-hmm. of a search engine and thus we're going to get <laughs> different results. Not just like neither of us is necessarily getting the truth, however you want to define what the truth is. Right. Right. Or the truth may be on page three of the results. How few, how often do we do go that far looking at Never. results? Yeah. We've become a very fast paced society, right? I'll look at the first two or three hits, click on one, think I've got the best information, go make a post about it. Um, Being information literate, being a thoughtful consumer does take more time and more effort. And that's, you know, a hard sell sometimes in our society. Mm -hmm. But when we don't do that, we get things like rampant mis and disinformation about COVID and and the vaccine. Uh, Rampant disinformation about the Ukrainian war all sorts of situations. Yeah. It's certainly not just, uh, not just Americans right. <laughs> that are in this, this boat. Um, is there anything that you want to add anything that you think people should know? Um, you know, any other recommendations for people maybe who are looking to boost their own media literacy in addition to what you already talked about? I think one thing we can do to boost information literacy is, like I said, be a little bit slower in how we consume news and think about it a little bit more. Um, another thing is to use those search engines we were just uh, complaining about and search for information literacy resources. Um, if you find something from a library, if you find something from a reputable nonprofit organization, those can be useful resources to uh, train yourself to be a little bit smarter when you're using the internet. And hopefully you'll catch some of the misinformation and disinformation tricks that are out there and you can protect yourself in that way. And then you can share those with other people around you in your circle. Yeah. My favorite recommendation, um, just to add it, is the News Literacy Project for anybody who is mm-hmm. uh, is looking for good resources. If you just want a quick primer and some easy tools that you can refer to, um, there's something called the SIFT method, which now I'm forgetting what it stands for, S-I-F-T, um, which means that I need to pull it up on my own computer and look at it while we're talking. Um, but News Literacy Project is a really good um, resource for anyone who's 
trying to navigate all this. Yeah, I think that is a great resource. Um, taking things with a grain of salt, you know, we're taught that as kids. And I think continuing that old adage is useful as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's right. It's hard to think of someone else who I'd want to give the power to, to decide what kind of information I get. So then the only other person who's really got the power to make sure I'm getting good information, um, is me. And we've all just got to be more accountable for what we're reading. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, if you think about the internet as the wild, wild west, that's the metaphor a lot of people use and who should be in charge of it, you know, quote unquote, in charge of it, who should be the the ultimate decider of what other people see. I actually can't think of anybody, myself included, who I want to be the ultimate decider. And I can think of plenty of people that I would really not want to be the ultimate decider of what people see on the internet. Um, yeah. I often talk about my uncle in these sorts of situations. He and I have polar opposite political views. If he was in charge, I would only see things from his perspective and I might not be able to develop my own political views, my own stances. My whole world would be colored by his perspective and I would be at a complete disadvantage and complete loss. But the reverse is true also. If I was in charge, he wouldn't see his point of view. He wouldn't develop his own perspective. And you know, that's part of human autonomy. That's part of our basic rights is to explore information, develop our own points of view. So I'm really leery of anything that wants to restrict that capability. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And I, I actually had this conversation with my dad. So we have a similar kind of dynamic where we don't really agree politically, but we talk about politics all the time. And he was listening to some podcast um, God, I wish I could remember what we were talking about, but I, we finally got into it and I realized that he was kind of relaying something that he had heard on this really popular podcast. And I happened to have read about that podcast host and knew about that host's background. And we ended up having a really kind of useful conversation where I don't think that I totally changed my dad's mind, but going back to what you were saying at the beginning, it's like, because that was out there, I could very easily say like reporting it to YouTube and saying, this guy is a quack. You need to take this off. But it actually ended up being really useful that it was out there that anyone who wanted to be critical of that podcast host could listen to what he was saying and understand where he was coming from. And then use that, you know, to talk to somebody who maybe was getting that information. Um, and I was like, man, dad, don't you know that that guy's like a raging misogynist though? And he was like, huh, I did not know that. But now that you say that, <laughs> and we had a pretty, um, we had a pretty good conversation about it. Um, so I think that there is, um, I think there's a lot of value there. And I definitely understand the instinct to say, oh my God, this is dangerous. It's got to come down, but it's really hard to develop a policy to do that. Right. In a way that's better. Right. To develop an effective policy. And the danger is I'm going to protect the stuff that I like, that I agree with, and not the stuff that somebody else agrees with. Um, right. But the shoe could very easily be on the other foot, right? It could very easily be turned around. Um, in fact, to go back to the beginning of our conversation when we were talking about hate speech, um, many of the countries in Europe that have hate speech laws have actually persecuted traditionally oppressed groups and communities for violating those hate speech laws. Hmm. Um, 
sometimes those sorts of laws end up being used against the very groups that we intend to protect um, because those groups aren't in power. And so when you're trying to challenge power, power gets angry and uses the, those very laws to try to further suppress people. So that's just all to say that restrictions, I think, are very dangerous and very difficult to implement because there's so much nuance, there's so much context. And in the U.S., we've come to really value that context around freedom of speech. Yes, it creates problems, especially on the Internet. But it's like democracy. Is there a better way? I don't know. Right. <laughs> I think that's a good way to end it. And should be our new slogan, democracy. Is there a better way? I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to say. That can be your unofficial model, like on rough days. You're like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying yes. I'm not saying no. I don't really know. <laughs> I'm definitely going to send you a tote bag with that on it. Um, Shannon Oldman, thank you so much for joining us today. I don't know if you have 60 seconds, but yeah. can you make a plug? This has almost nothing to do with what we're talking about, but can you just make a general plug for library science and why it's cool? So I have a friend who just finished a PhD program in library science, who's doing um, data architecture for oh, like awesome. massive corporate yeah. websites. And I was like, library, you're going to be a librarian. What does that even mean? And he was like, it's actually a giant fascinating field that you don't know anything about. Can you give everybody however many seconds you want on why it's cool and interesting and bigger than they think? Yeah. Um, library science is this vast field that encompasses... Library science is a vast field that encompasses things like selecting books, story times for children. But there's so much more. Um, libraries are often community centers and resources for everyone in the community. There's also things like data management, organizing, classifying information, making search engines and social media better. All these things come out of library science. It's really a field for people who care about accurate information, who care about useful information, and who care for the people interacting with that information. Um, we sort of unofficially say that our school School of Information is the intersection of technology and people and society. Technology and people. And um, it's a fascinating field. Um, I stumbled into it by accident and it's like a perfect fit. I'm glad I'm here. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's very cool. I was, um, I was humbled by how it was like a much more, it's a much deeper, richer field than I had any idea. Um, and very, very glad that I know more about it now. Yeah, so, awesome. Um, Shannon Ullman, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I've had a great time talking about these thorny issues.